you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please turn with me to uh, the book of Exodus? Uh, we're going to be uh, this morning uh, in, the, uh, in chapter 1 and the first part of uh, chapter 2 of Exodus uh, today as we commence this new preaching series. So I'm going to be reading uh, Exodus 1, verse 1, right through to chapter 2, verse 10. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, ch- the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. And gracious God, we uh, sang that uh, song just before that says, I stand in awe of you. As we open your word now, as we hear from it, as we come under the instruction of your Holy Spirit and the, the, uh, the leading of your Spirit, Lord, we pray that we might indeed stand in awe before you afresh today. May we accept your word, receive your word as indeed the word of God, even though it is preached by man. Father, help me not to uh, be in the way of all that you want to do today, but use me as your instrument, and may we as your people give you all glory and honour today for all things and in all ways. Amen. Well, as you've already heard, we're kicking off this new preaching series, and as we do, we, uh, we move from the New Testament and from the end of the Bible and Revelation to the Old Testament and almost to the very beginning of the Bible here in Exodus. In fact, it's only just the second book of the Bible, the second in what's called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the, uh, the, the, uh, the Bible, which the Jews would call the Torah, or the, uh, their, uh, their, their, uh, the, um, these five books which were the books of Moses, if you like and held in much high esteem by the Jewish people. But of course, today as we come to it, we know that it is indeed not just the word of God for Jewish people, but the word of God for all of us. We've titled this particular series, Exodus, Forgetful People, Faithful God. Because this book very clearly highlights in lots of different ways the fickleness and the forgetfulness of God's people, which often results in them being unfaithful in lots of different ways, especially to God. But, you know, we also, it emphasises the fact of how God is faithful, so faithful towards his people. And uh, we see that, uh, that it's, it's very much God's nature and to be this way, that, uh, that, that we see God's faithfulness being worked out in all kinds of different ways in this book, particularly through his faithfulness to his covenant promises, which he made back in Genesis to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And promise, these are the promises which we're going to see uh, being fulfilled, although partially fulfilled through this book to God's people. And uh, we're going to see that God in, uh, in this uh, book of Exodus is the great orchestrator, if you like. He's, uh, he's going to use both the good and the bad to accomplish his divine purposes. And in sometimes God is going to be very visible in that, and other times he's not going to be quite as visible. In fact, sometimes it's going to appear that God is almost invisible in lots of different ways. But regardless of how God appears, he is sovereign over everything and everyone, and his perfect will and plans will succeed. Of course, this is true not only of God's people here in Exodus, but of his people all throughout history, isn't it? That uh, today and right down through the ages, throughout all the world, God's people have been faced with or are facing all kinds of, of, of circumstances, some good, some bad. 
But what we discover here in this particular book, and as we uh, sort of delve into it this morning in these early chapters, is that, uh, you know, that, um, that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances, no matter what situations, no matter, you know, who sort of tries to plan to undermine God's purposes and that sort of thing, God very much is the one who is going to win out, that his will is good, his will is perfect, and because of his sovereignty and his power, his way is always going to succeed. What we're also going to find in this book are a number of examples of people who stand out in really challenging circumstances. In fact, these people, we're going to, as we look at them, they're going to shine out like beacons, if you like, beacons of light that shine in a lot of darkness and reveal to us ourselves today not only how to endure such trials ourselves, but to rise above them and also to find victory in them. Of course, these people are far from perfect. But their greatness, in inverted commas, is seen in their ultimate trust and obedience to God, despite sometimes overwhelming pressures to abandon him and give in to their sin and evil. We find them very much in these opening chapters of Exodus. So uh, please, if you've already closed your Bibles, open them back up again to this particular, these, these opening chapters of this book. I've divided this, uh, this uh, message this morning into two sections. We're going to begin by looking at the circumstances and the situations that, sort of, that, uh, that, uh, that, that provide the backdrop, if you like, for, this, uh, for the people of God here today. And, in, uh, and we, I've titled it This Present Darkness. For those of you, many, many years ago, there was uh, books and things written by a guy called Frank Pretty titled that. It's not got anything to do with that, okay? But it's just a title that I've sort of used to just sort of help us to sort of focus our thoughts that uh, that in these opening chapters we're going to see a really dark world that is that is uh, uh, people are oppressed they're under incredible persecution they're in, under incredible suffering there's a lot of difficulty there's death of children all these sorts of things it's an incredibly dark and evil world you know, in his classic uh, work, uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, writes in the very opening words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And here, as the book of Exodus begins, we quickly discover that for the people of God, it was one of the darkest times in their history. Their residence in the land of Egypt, courtesy of their ancestors. We see that in the first five verses. We're told that, uh, you know, we, we, we're given the, the names of the sons of Jacob and of, of Joseph who were there in the land of Egypt. If you're, not, if you're unfamiliar with the story, you'll need to go back into Genesis to sort of pick it up. But just to give you the, uh, the very quick whirlwind kind of tour... Uh, Jacob had 12 sons, all right? One of those sons, Joseph, was, uh, the, his other brothers were jealous of him. They basically sold him to, to these uh, traders who took him off to Egypt. In Egypt, he went through all kinds of, uh, of challenges and trials himself, but ultimately came to, to, uh, to power in this particular country as second in charge, okay, of, uh, of the nation of Egypt. Uh, God was sovereignly at work, you know, behind the scenes. And uh, when a famine hit the, the, uh, the world at that particular point in time that affected not just Egypt, but all the surrounding nations, uh, God had, uh, had given uh, Joseph this, uh, this, or had given 
Pharaoh this vision and, and Joseph was able to interpret it to say there's going to be seven really good years and then these seven years of famine. And so Joseph said, we need to make preparations for the famine, so let's store up all this stuff in the, uh, in the seven good years. And so Joseph was used to do that. And uh, there in the, the uh, land of, of, uh, of, of Israel, Jacob and his sons, under this, uh, this incredible famine, when those years of famine came, had to go down to Egypt to buy food. And of course, they're reunited with Joseph. And, uh, and, and God um, brings his people to that place, and that's where they settled for the time being. And so Exodus picks this story up several hundred years actually into the future and we find the nation of Israel not just 70 people but they've grown we're told in verse 5 there sorry in in verse 6 where it says that Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died but the people of Israel were fruitful they increased greatly they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them they've been in Egypt for a number of years And over this time, they have become very large in number. It's a testimony, if you like, to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. It's the fulfillment of his creation mandate, which we see in Genesis 1.28, where God said to Adam and Eve, you know, that you are to 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 multiply, be fruitful and increase and and have, have dominion over creation. But not only that, we also see it as a, a partial fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob through the promises we see in, uh, in Genesis to them. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the land. And so we see God working through this particular, through this particular nation of fulfilling his covenant promises so that through them in the long run that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we see first and foremost that uh, that God is at work here. All even in the uh, you know all the 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 day to day lives of these people and all of the challenges and that sort of thing they're facing, we see God working behind the scenes. Well, having lived peaceably in the land of Egypt for a long time, which resulted in them prospering. This new king comes to power and begins to see them as a potential threat. We see that in verses 8 to 10 of our passage this morning. This new king arises over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It may, it's not necessarily they didn't know Joseph, but he refused to sort of really uh, take any kind of notice or give any credence to, to Joseph and, uh, and, and all the work that he had done previously in the land. And uh, he chose, this obviously was a, uh, a king who was very much his own person, who wanted you know, his, his name to be great rather than the, the, the people who'd gone before him. He's got this, these delusions of grandeur, if you like. And so he employs several measures to help keep the Hebrews in check. First of all, he employs human, he, he, he says that, uh, you know, we're going to deal shrewdly with these people. He said, uh, you know, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, so come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Pharaoh's uh, desire was that he was going to use human wisdom, human rationale, human means, all that sort of thing, in order to be able to deal with this particular problem of these people of Israel there in his land, to stop them from being this threat. And uh, so he begins by oppressing them through slavery. But despite Pharaoh's best efforts, despite all of the resources and things that are available to this man, all the power, the authority that he has, despite all his best efforts, we see that the people multiply, that they continue to grow and thrive. 
This appears to be a common pattern concerning God's people over, over history, isn't it? If you're familiar with uh, perhaps the church in, in other parts of the world, particularly in China, in the past 100 years, you've only got to look at, you know, through the, uh, the, uh, the uh, period where uh, Mao Zedong was, uh, was leader in there and the oppression of the Christian church there in China. And even now, they thought that, you know, we can do away with the Christian church, that if we oppress them and we, 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 we uh, say to them, you can't have churches, you can't worship, anything like that, we put people in jail and so forth, that we can, we can crush this Christianity in our country country but of course we've seen through that time that the church in 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 china has grown exponentially through that oppression and through that uh, through that persecution we've seen it in places like iran and, and other and other regions around the world we see that where you know man's wisdom is in, in you know said about um, destroying god's uh purposes and God's people in this world that God tends to multiply and grow and and his ways win out of course we should never downplay the great sufferings of believers in these places even if it does lead to church growth though should we we should always remember our brothers and sisters around the world who are going through incredible pain and suffering and hardship even for some of them to the point of death we need to remember that uh, even though the church, God is using those circumstances to grow his church, that we should never downplay the suffering. Now, when Pharaoh's plans are frustrated, he, he drastically then ups the ante in his persecution and oppression. We see that in verse 13 and 14 of our passage today. He said, but the more they were oppressed, the, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Thankfully, none of us in this country have experienced this kind of slavery and oppression. Can't even begin to imagine not having any kind of independence or freedom yourself, but to know that from sun up to sunrise—sorry, from sunrise to to sunset—every single day, that you were at the mercy of these ruthless, oppressive uh, people who were just there to make you work and work and work, regardless of how you felt, no matter what the conditions outside, anything like that. That your job was just to serve them and to serve their purposes, and you had no freedom or anything like that. It reminds me of, um, of a, uh, a family I saw a number of years ago um, through a, uh, a video that was put out um, by one of the aid organisations, this Indian family, a dad, his, his mum and their, uh, their few kids. And because of the fact this family was poor, they were uh, that poor that they needed to put food, they could, didn't have any food to feed their children. And so this man actually sold himself and his wife and his children into uh, the debt of a, a quarry owner in India. And, uh, and, and because of the fact that the interest rates charged by these particular people were so uh, astronomical, this family could never, ever, ever pay off that debt. There was no way in the world that they were ever going to get out of that situation. And these children, I think one, you know, one of them was about as young as four or five or something like that. Every day they would go out into this quarry and they would basically just have to hammer away at these stones, trying to break the stones open so that the quarries, you know, they could, they could fill their quotas and that sort of thing like that. They'd get up, at, 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 as soon as the sun was up, they would get up, they would fire their tools and sharpen them all up and then off they'd go for the whole day until, uh, you know, until the sun went down and that was their life and there was no getting out of that. 
It's hard to imagine that kind of slavery, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hard to imagine that kind of oppression. But this is what the people were going through. And, of course, we read that, uh, that um, you know, when uh, you know, the king decides that you know, this isn't working as, as well as he would hope, he uh, goes even further in his evil pers- purposes. He takes them to a new level and he starts to say, right, now it's time we start killing off the children, the babies. And so he resorts to genocide or infanticide, if you like. He thinks that by killing the male Hebrew babies, he can control the population growth that way. Can you imagine how evil a man has to be in order to order that sort of thing to happen? He initially seeks to use the Hebrew midwives as his tools of destruction. We see that in verse 15 and 16. He says to them, he says, uh, you know, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you need to kill him. If it is a daughter, then you shall let her live. Never ceases to amaze me, as I said, the profoundly evil ways that men will employ to satisfy their sinful lusts and desires and to appease their fears. Because ultimately, this is what it was. It was really to appease Pharaoh's fears of the, of the threat that these people might be to his own power, his own authority, his own rule. You know, if we don't, uh, even if we're not, you know, we sort of don't have to look very far, do we, to sort of see the, uh, the evil purposes and plans and wickedness of mankind in our world today. Just a cursory look at the news this week would certainly affirm this reality, wouldn't it? The tragedies we've seen unfold, you know, just in our own city this week have been horrendous. Of course, Pharaoh's actions towards the Hebrew people reminds us that Satan himself is always seeking to oppose the plans and purposes of God, especially in relation to God's people. I mean, history is littered with numerous examples of how p- the people of God have been the, the targets of opposition, of oppression, of hatred and hostility. Not only that, we've seen the many ways in which authorities and powers have sought to distort and tear down all kinds of ethical, moral and social boundaries, believing that this is for the greater good of humanity. We see it in things like abortion, through no-fault divorce laws, through same-sex marriage, through physician-assisted dying, through legalisation of dangerous drugs, and now it seems that today eugenics is even starting to, uh, to rise and being spoken about in some, in some places. It's already practiced in Iceland where, you know, they've, uh, they've, they're proud of the fact that, uh, you know, there is no Down syndrome babies living in that country today uh, under five years of age. And the reason for that is because they kill them. It's dreadful, isn't it? It's dreadful. It's such a dark and evil and horrible world that we live in. Christians today in Australia are not in slavery to government authorities, but there is a growing fear and dread being shown towards our faith and beliefs. You've only got to look at the cases of Israel Folau and Margaret Court to see that. And of course, it's leading to pressure being brought to bear to restrict civil liberties and rights to religious freedom in our own country. Our world, like the world of the Israelites here in these early chapters of Exodus, is one filled with much suffering, much evil and much injustice. And that's not to mention all the challenges and trials that life itself just throws at us. 
with all of the complications of, you know, re re relating to people's health today and all of the struggles that many people go through from that perspective. You know, all of the job and financial security issues that people have faced today. You know, we've uh, only got to look at our, uh, you know, our economy nowadays and see that many people are struggling to make ends meet. Wages are, uh, you know, aren't, aren't, uh, aren't getting any, uh, any, any higher yet, you know, all of this, the, the costs and that sort of thing of our world today are getting, you know, they're increasing all the time. We see, you know, things like relationship breakdowns in families. We have, you know, struggles, you know, based around, you know, the, uh, the things going on in our own families and the difficulties and the challenges that come with, with those, you know, whom we're sort of trying to care for and look after and, and, not, and, and finding the challenges there that we're not getting the support and, and that sort of thing that, that many people need. Or families are being split up, you know, out of, uh, you know, not be through any sort of, you know, fault of their own, but because that's just the way it's got to be. We see things like loneliness growing in our nation. People with fears, people with doubts, people with concerns, questions, all these sorts of things in our lives. Each and every one of us have got these things going on in our lives, haven't we? All of these kind of these 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 these, these things that, that kind of oppress us and bear us, you know, bear down on us like burdens, like a, a burden on our shoulders and on our backs. And we feel, you know, sometimes in slavery to these things in our lives. And it's in these dark places where God's people often cry out, Lord, save us. Where are you, Lord? Save us, please. This is the kind of backdrop we find here in Exodus. These people are under incredible you know, burdens, in, not just physically, but, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. They're just burdened. And, and it's such a, you know, they just don't know where this ray of light is going to come from in their life. They don't know where this ray of hope is going to come from in their lives apart from God, and they say, they cry out, God, it's only you who's going to be able to change the circumstances and the situations here. But it's interesting, the people have been crying out like, like this for quite a long period of time. And they're wondering, God, are you really hearing our prayers? Can you imagine to be praying you know, like these, these Egyptians you know, under this intense oppression, crying out to God, but it just it seems as though the Egyptians are getting stronger, the, the, the oppression is getting heavier and harder. God, where are you? Are you truly listening? Do you truly hear what I'm saying? Do you truly hear the prayers of, of, of your people, the burdens and the, the passion in our hearts wanting you to step in and do something? is when things look the bleakest for the people of God in Egypt, though that we come across some amazing examples of goodness, courage and faith that shine a bright light of hope in the darkness. The first of these is seen in the example of the two Hebrew women, uh, the two Hebrew midwives that are named here in this passage. You know, it's really interesting as you read through this passage, apart from uh, the names of, uh, of J Jacob and his sons at the beginning, no other names of people are actually mentioned here. Not even Pharaoh, you know, the most powerful man in his day, in all the world. We don't even, we're not even told his name. But the people's names whom we are told are these two Hebrew midwives. And their name's Shifra. And, and poor. 
Isn't it amazing that, uh, that that's the case? They immediately stand out in this passage because they are the only two people who are actually named. And that should draw our focus and our attention to them. Not even the all-powerful king, as I said, just these two faithful women who are named. They are, the most like, they, they are most likely the women who were in charge of all the Hebrew midwives and they're summoned by Pharaoh and they're given strict instructions to kill all these male babies at birth. And if they didn't carry through Pharaoh's commands, then they themselves would be in serious trouble of losing their own lives. Can you imagine being in their situation, faced with an absolutely impossible scenario? Kill the babies or lose your own life. Yet verse 17 goes on to tell us that they feared God and so did, they did not do what the king of Egypt commanded them. What incredible courage. What amazing courage. They feared God more than they feared the king, more than they feared his retribution. And God, we're told in verses 19 to 21, honoured them for their faithfulness. One commentator puts it this way where he says, these women acted to preserve God's people and their alignment with him and his purposes caused them to act as his agents in his purpose of blessing and fruitfulness. It's interesting, it's, uh, you know, in, in just this we see a, almost a partial fulfilment again of Genesis 12 where God says to Abraham, those whom you bless or the, those in your family who you bless, I will bless. You know? We see this incredible example in these Hebrew midwives. The second example we're given is of another woman in, verses, in, in chapter 2, in the opening verses of that. This time, this woman is unnamed. She's a Levite, we're told, who marries a man of the house of Levi. In chapter 6, we're going to learn that their names were Amram and Jochebed. And we're told in Exodus chapter 2, in verse 2, that she conceives and has a son. Most likely, his, this son is the third baby that they've had. That later on, again, we'll learn that, uh, that this child has got a sister and a brother in Miriam and Aaron. And when she sees that this child, when the woman who gives birth to this child, she sees this child, she notices that he is a fine child. Verse 2, when she saw that he was a fine child, she laid him Sorry, she hid him for three months. Now, mums, dads, when your babies were born, who didn't consider their baby to be fine? <laughs> so it's a really, really, you know, it, it's a kind of, a, um, you know, a, a, a strange thing that that should be mentioned here in this passage, that, you know, that he was a fine child. You know, the Hebrew can sort of, you know, the, the original language can sort of, uh, and I give the, uh, the impression that it, it could be that she meant he's a beautiful child. Well, again, you know, what baby isn't a beautiful baby? Some are probably a little bit more beautiful than others. But we all think they're beautiful. So it's a bit hard to sort of try and you know, understand what, uh, you know, what's, what's being said here. But another way to understand that word is that uh, it can also be translated good. It's the same word that is used by God at, uh, in the creation account. Remember at the end of each day, God said, and it was good. 
Okay, and at the end he said, and it was very good. Well, that word good is the same word that's being used here. And this is God sort of, you know, as he, as he, as he, creates, you know, the, uh, as he creates the world, as he creates the universe, and he says it is good, it's got that aspect of being good for its purpose, that it is, it is a, a proper and right fit for its purpose. And so the narrator here in this passage is kind of really drawing in our attention here to, for, this, for this young boy and saying, you know, God has got a specific purpose for him. Now, the, the woman didn't receive any kind of angelic kind of prophecies or anything like that. She had no indication in that regard. But it's interesting that we should hear that she saw him as a fine child, as a good child. And she subsequently hides the child for three months. But when this becomes impossible, she acts in great faith trusting in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And she places this child in this little basket on the river Nile. In a way, she kind of, you know, um, she kind of obeys Pharaoh's command to throw the babies into the river, but she does so in this basket. It's interesting that word for basket can be also translated ark. Ark, as in Noah. Yeah. There's incredible imagery that's, been, that's, that's at play in this passage. You know, it's just uh, amazing to sort of see, you know, that, uh, you know how, um, how Genesis and Exodus just fit in so, so well. And, of course, we see that, um, you know, that the, uh, the uh, child that, that, that as, as is placed in this particular ark, we see that, um, that this great biblical imagery is at play. A child placed on the waters of judgment and death in a basket in the place of death life wins out through obedience and faith and faith causes us to act and to take courageous steps confident in God and the fact that he is at work even though we may not clearly see it can you imagine the action on 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 uh, Moses's mum's uh, behalf you know, can you imagine, you know, the, uh, the background to this sort of action? Remember, just think about it for a moment. Here is this woman, Amram and Jochebed, and they learn, you know, that they're going to have a child. At the particular point in time that, uh, that the king of Pharaoh is ordering all male babies be thrown into the river and killed. Now, if you were a mum in that situation, what would you be praying for that child? You would be praying, wouldn't you, that that baby would be a girl, right? Wouldn't you? Dads, would you be praying the same, that if, if, if you knew that you were pregnant, you'd be, you'd be praying like anything to God, please, God, let this child be a girl. And yet they get a boy. Can you imagine the issues surrounding trying to hide a child for three months? Who hasn't had the screaming baby in the middle of the night? Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine the issues surrounding, you know, the, 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 this family trying to, to hide this male baby so it's not killed? All of the stuff that went, went in, you know, in that, all of the, 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 the fears that went along with that. Can you imagine the agony that this mother and father would have gone through when they realised that after three months they could hide this baby no longer and so we need to put it in the river? We need to put our child out there in that place that is not safe, that place that is filled with danger. And to do that deliberately, trusting in the sovereignty and the purposes of God in the midst of that. Can you imagine all of the stuff that is going on in these parents' hearts and lives at that particular point? 
And yet we see great confidence and trust shown in God through this act of faith. And so we see these, these shining lights of faith of the midwives of, of, of Moses' parents, particularly the mother. The third beacon of hope that pierces the darkness in this passage is one that is not explicit, but it's implicit. And we've been mentioning it a little bit as we've been going along. Because so far, we haven't actually seen any direct mention of God apart from the blessing of the Hebrew midwives back there in verse 20. Yet God's sovereign hand has been at work in all kinds of ways, working out his divine plan and purposes behind the scenes. He's been multiplying the Israelites amidst the oppression. He's given great faith and courage to the Hebrew midwives. We've seen God's hand at work in the provision of this rescuer, albeit at this stage a very vulnerable child. He is going to be God's chosen deliverer of his people from slavery in Egypt. And yet, you know, we see that even at these early stages, his life is in great danger. We see it in the person of the Egyptian princess who sees the child and is moved with compassion in her heart to care for him. As the princess comes across this child in the river, as she opens up the basket and she sees this child in there and she sees the baby crying, she's just overwhelmed with pity for that child. Now, again, think about it for a minute because I don't think we often do when we read over these passages sort of fairly quickly. Think about this child, this, this, this um, daughter of Pharaoh. She is of the royal household. Her father's the king over Egypt. He's the one that has declared this, this command that all the babies need to be thrown in the river and be drowned. And she's his daughter. She comes from that, from, from that household. Can you imagine what would have been going through Miriam's mind, Moses' sister, when, when she sees you know, Moses' ark there as she's you know, keeping watch over it in the river and she sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up the ark and she thinks, oh no, that is the last thing that, that, that we needed to happen. Goodness me, you know, Pharaoh's daughter. And yet God works in Pharaoh's daughter's heart and she's moved with compassion to save that child. And we see then that this child then is, you know, then Moses' mum is actually paid by Pharaoh in order to, to take care of him, you know, until he's ready to, be, to come into uh, to Pharaoh's household and be looked after there. God's just amazing, isn't he? He just blows our minds with the different things and you know, just the way he works. And we, need, we, we should never lose sight of that, folks. You know, as I said, we we sang that song this morning, I stand in awe of you, Lord. We should stand in awe at the the, the work of God, even when we we, we may not necessarily understand and see it clearly, but we can be confident in knowing that God is powerfully at work in all kinds of different ways in every situation in our world today. We can have confidence and hope in that. You know, despite the best attempts of Satan and man to foil his plans, God's wisdom and power prevailed. It's interesting that the daughters play such a huge part in this. You know, Pharaoh saying the the daughters should survive, only the daughters should survive, and how the daughters, you know, Miriam and and Pharaoh's daughter are, are very much at play in this. So many amazing sort of ways in which God is at work that God's ultimate deliverer will be raised by Pharaoh in his own household. 
You know, folks, it reminds me today that we live in a world like Exodus chapter 1 and 2 where the opposition against God and his people looks strong and powerful. And the forces against us look powerful. It's a place where we find all kinds of hardship and trials where doubts and fears are real and they're great. Yet it's in our darkness we're reminded that the light of God shines brightest in the ones who trust in him who act in fear of him rather than in the fear of man. People who seek to align themselves with his purposes rather than the so-called wisdom of this age. People who act in faith, trusting that God is at work even when they can't see it. Reminds us that we can trust God confidently today knowing that he is indeed sent a rescuer, a saviour who has defeated the, the power of Satan, sin and death and who has provided for his children a wonderful assurance that regardless, regardless of what this world dishes up, we are safe in him and that his purposes will ultimately win out. We can confidently say with the Apostle Paul that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus as, as, as Lord. That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That if God is for us, then who can be against us? We should hear amen after amen after amen. Folks, when we read Exodus, we're not just learning about the past but we're learning for the present. We are the people of God scattered around in this world today. We're subject to its pressures. We're enduring its hardships and its sufferings and its sorrows. But God knows our situations and he does hear our cries and he is active. His purposes for us will prevail. Christ's Life, death, resurrection and ascension guarantee that for us, folks, that they will prevail and we can be sure and certain of that. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on. I've got a bit of an inkling with some of you what's happening in your lives. Many of you have got a lot of fears and doubts and concerns and, and struggles right now that you're going through in the midst of your life. And it may be even now that you're wondering, God, where are you? I'm crying out to you, but I just don't see it right now. This passage reminds us afresh today that God is at work. That God is working behind the scenes in, in so many different ways. And he calls us as his people to, to just act in faith and in trust in him to keep hanging on to him no matter what, to keep being faithful. And as God gives us the strength and the ability to be able to do that, that you then can become such a wonderful and marvellous example and witness to the grace and goodness of our God in your life. That your faith can shine out in those places of darkness where other people might be really struggling right now. And God can use you to bring hope and to bring life and to bring hope and, and to bring assurance. But most of all, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because He Himself is our rescuer. He Himself is our Saviour. And because He came and gave His life as a ransom for us. 
for our sin. Because he defeated death, rose again and is seated at the right hand of God today, interceding on our behalf, we can have a great confidence knowing that regardless of what this world throws at us, that we are, we are secure in him. And God's purposes towards us are always good, are always perfect. And he will ultimately bring us home. Amen? Amen.